You're listening to Radio Activism, a production of the Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. It's a lot easier to identify a problem than to fix it. I think pretty much everybody over the age of three knows this. For example, let's say you have an addiction, and you might even know sort of why you have it, but that doesn't make it go away. Or you know that the head gasket in your car needs to be replaced, but it's really hard to get to it, and you need a lot of tools that you don't have. Yes, I have done that, and I will not try it again. And those are small personal examples. When you get into large-scale problems like climate change, world-scale, both identifying the problem and fixing it are infinitely more complex. First, you have to agree that there even is a problem, which some elements in the U.S. have had trouble doing. Then you look at the causes, carbon and methane emissions, let's say consumerism, growing world population, and still you're left with a lot of big questions like, are those causes? Are they symptoms? Are they both? And above all, how do we find the political buy-in to address what is basically a world-scale emergency that most people are ignoring. Like someone's wounded on the side of the road and everyone's just driving by. We're about to speak with Stuart Scott, who is founder and director of the United Planet Faith and Science Initiative. And he makes the case that it's our economic system, specifically its necessity for continual and unlimited growth that is the fundamental problem. He outlines the scale and urgency of the problem, and also its spiritual and moral components. And he offers something other than the solutions you've already heard a thousand times. Stuart Scott calls himself an eco-social strategist, looking at ecosystems and climate change, as well as economic systems. And he's the host of the Climate Matters TV show. I'd like to welcome now Stuart Scott. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, allowing me to speak with you. It's great to talk to you. I mean... The very name of your organization brings up a really big question, which is faith and science just seem like such different conversations. It's groups of people who generally don't talk to each other, (laughs) or do they? Well, you know, I, I named it that with very strong intention because you can kind of look at humanity and say, how many people believe in various religions? What's the percentage? The percentage is very high if you include spirituality, not just religion. If you then look at humanity from the perspective of how many people believe in science, it's also a very big percentage of humanity. So there's an overlap. And in particular, even though we think of those the two schools of thought as divergent, there's a particularly strong consensus between science and faith and among faiths that don't ordinarily agree on many things. So you've got Buddhists and Hindus and Christians and and Muslims and Jews aware of the climate problem, aware that we are in the Christian framework or the Abrahamic framework destroying creation. And so those two consensuses amongst religions and faith and between faith and science are very strong. And the United Planet part I could have left it as the Faith and Science Initiative, but the United Planet is an analog of the United Nations, but without borders, because we have to have the realization, whether on a metaphysical or a physical plane, that humanity is all in this together. There will be no winners, per se. The people with the money who think that they are going to be okay will not be okay for long in the world we're headed towards. 
There's a quotation on your site that says, we recognize that climate change is not merely an economic or technical problem, but rather at its core, a moral, spiritual, and cultural one. What does that mean? Well, the way that the original epiphany came to me, the, the brainstorm, was that even though climate change is discussed as carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions, that the root cause, perhaps, is that a very secular society nowadays, for the most part, are all promoting consumption as a way of filling the emptiness that we feel. And so rather than tell people, meditate or go out in nature if you have a problem, it's go shopping. You know, the famous line is when George W. Bush had the chance to respond to the attacks on the World Trade Center, instead of telling people any of those other things like pray or mourn. He said, go shopping. So that's, that is the essence of our society. So it's also, it can be said that our secularizing society in itself has had the effect of pushing people more and more into consumption as a way of life and less and less into that part of life, which is just quiescent and appreciative and being, you know, just enjoying your life. And it doesn't take a trip to the mall to enjoy your life. One of the things I was thinking about in connection with that, and there's certainly a culture of shopping in the United States, there's also the reality that those of us who may not really be involved with the cult of shopping have to live and have to eat, and the kind of infrastructures that support our being able to live and eat and work are not climate friendly. So I might be a Buddhist who meditates every morning or a Christian who prays every morning and lives a life of loving kindness and appreciation, but I'm still getting food that was grown in an unsustainable manner, let's say, or driving a car because the job that I have is 20 miles away, things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like the quote unquote spiritual shift. It's no longer, that that might in some ways be the root of the problem. I'm not not even sure, but where we're at now, it's not necessarily the solution or is it? Yeah, we we are, the way I phrase what you just said, is that we are, in the United States at least, embedded in a society that is wasteful by nature. So almost anything we do has some level of climate unfriendly or ecological unfriendliness. And I want to take it from it being about climate change, which I regard as the leading edge of the problem. But not far behind it are, are violating other ecological limits of the planet the nitrogen cycle, the water cycle, uh, hydrology. I mean, we are drawing down our aquifers at a completely unsustainable rate. Thousands of years of rainfall are being pumped up in a very short period of time. Well, and we call it here in the West, we call it mining water. Mm -hmm. It's an extractive as opposed to a renewable resource. Right. The way one of my teachers, mentors, sources of inspiration, Al Gore, the way he says it is, that the atmosphere is extremely limited, but yet we grew up with a sense that it was limitless because for thousands of years, we would look up and we'd think the heavens went on forever, when in fact, the clouds are probably the limit of what's breathable. That's not very far. Mining anything, when we come to it from our particular perspective as humans, the earth being so large, natural resources seeming so limitless, oh, well, we'll just find more of it. 
we can't think that way anymore because on a planet with 7 billion, approaching 9 billion humans, there isn't enough to continue with what's called an extractive model for civilization. We have to have a regenerative model. It's a new paradigm, and humanity needs to make that jump, needs to make that shift quickly. And that's partly what I consider my function to be. So let's talk about that, because going hand in hand with this idea that the atmosphere is limitless, the resources available to us are limitless, is an economic model that says that limitlessness gives us limitless growth, and we can only have growth under a paradigm of no limits, but we've got limits. So there are limits to growth. Yes. But our economic system hasn't quite understood that. I will say it's more intentional than that. Our current economic system actually denies it. And it was set up in a way that excludes that notion completely. It's the heart of the matter. I would call it the bottom line, but I don't like using that kind <laughs> of reference. terminology, yeah. Well, the, it, it just shows you how it's invaded our language, our very way of thinking about things. But yes, to quote Bill Clinton, but in a sense that's opposite to the way he used the words, it's the economy, stupid. It is the economic system that is currently humanity's problem, the way I see it. That we have an economic system, which, by the way, when you see or hear the word economics in our current society, it's talking about a very specific brand of economics that's known as neoclassical economics. What are the characteristics of that, and what are the other kinds of economics? Well, let me go back to how it was cemented in place, because it's developed over a long period of time. But it was cemented in place by the actions of a few Wall Street bankers. The name J.P. Morgan should ring a bell with everyone. And he endowed the economics chair of the University of Chicago Business School's economics department. And as we know, he who pays the piper calls the tune. So a neoclassical economist was put in place who either dismissed or by attrition let go of all the classical economists that promoted the work of John Stuart Mill and those which you only learn now in contemporary civilization classes because they've been edited out of the curriculum, the economics curriculum. I believe Adam Smith said that at some point we need to stop trying to consume, stop trying to grow and improve humanity, that our economic system will be aimed at improving civilization. You know, there's a metaphor that I can't help but think of, which is that when a tree is a little seedling, mm. it has to grow. But when it reaches its full height, it stops growing, but it bears fruit. When human beings are little children, we have to grow. And then when we reach our adulthood, that's when we start becoming really productive. Precisely. And the way I say it is nothing can grow forever within a finite container. Right. The earth is a finite container. Our current neoclassical growth economic system does not recognize that. In fact, denies it with the platitudes that, oh, human ingenuity is limitless. And so we will always think of something to substitute for something we run out of. That is a very, very slippery slope because we are running out of the space to dump our toxins, the atmospheric space, the land-based space, the ocean-based space, 
if not running out of resources. The way we teach neoclassical or growth economics is with a model that says there are producers and consumers. And those are the two entities. There is something gross missing from that model. There is no concept of an earth. So the only way you can produce and consume forever in ever-increasing quantities is by presuming or asserting that there are no effective limits. The other part of your question is what alternatives are there? The three models that I discuss are neoclassical growth economics, environmental economics, and ecological economics. Now, we've already discussed the neoclassical growth economics. So the other model that I'll turn to is called environmental economics. Now, that's a, an environmentalist view of the current growth economic meme. And what it does is it says, okay, let's price natural capital. Let's figure out what is a forest worth standing rather than cut down and turned into timber. And if we can figure that out, what's it worth to us? Then we will factor that into the equation somehow, and we will get a system that is sustainable somehow. And so that gives rise to concepts like ecosystem services. So yes. when you have an intact watershed, that actually cleans your water. Right. Or when you have pollinators, those right. basically make your agriculture possible. Now, it's a step in the right direction, because without that, we are headed towards the wall as fast as possible, pedal to the metal with our foot taped to the accelerator and a barrel of oil sitting on our foot. <laughs> and that metaphor kind of sums up all the, the insidious nature of the situation. But even if you add the factoring in of ecological system services, of natural capital, you still have a problem, which is you get more and more money and artifice pursuing less and less natural capital. I give the example to show the fallacy in this way. I'm told that at one point in time, Japan estimated what the value of its wetlands were. What's the value of the ecosystem services of all our wetlands? And they came up at that point in time with the figure $16 billion. Well, if they had been for sale for $16 billion, they would have been sold and hotels built already. So let's move on to the third. I mean, you talked about neoclassical economics and you talked about environmental economics, which is kind of like, it sounds like neoclassical economics with some patches on it. Mm -hmm. Precisely. What's, what's the third? The third is called ecological economics. The idea there is that unless you take into account the ecology of the planet and the ethical structure of humanity, the ethics of it, that you are going to get a system that's out of balance, that will not work, that will not be sustainable. So that's the critique, which probably you and I and many of our listeners already know. What is the economic system that is the alternative? What would our world look like? What would our daily lives look like? How would they be the same? How would they be different if we were doing ecological economics? Okay, well, um, I like to quote some of Herman Daly's Ten Candles. He was speaking to undergraduates at a university that were studying economics and encouraging them to ask their professors these ten questions. For instance, instead of taxing the goods, tax the bads. You don't want to tax things that are beneficial, like jobs and production of things for us. You want to tax the bads, the pollution. 
you want to put a tax or a fee on the non-renewable resource that's being mined out of existence. You want to tax the pollution that's being dumped because there's no way to reuse it. And if you tax those things, then the system will naturally gravitate towards one that is more ecologically in balance, that figures out how not to consume non-renewable resources. So if you tax the bads and not the goods, then eventually if the system actually worked the way it was supposed to, you'd have to find different sources of taxation, I guess. Mm -hmm. But okay, so what are some of the other points to ecological economics? This is the strongest one. This is the one that I usually talk about first. To move from fractional reserve banking to 100% reserve requirement. Now, that'll take a, a moment to explain. Our current banking system universally allows banks to lend out basically 10 times as much money as they have on reserve. So if you deposit a million dollars in a bank, then that bank can lend out nine million more, and it has to put that million dollars on reserve in the Federal Reserve System. Well, that ensures the growth of the amount of money because that money that you've lent needs to pay interest immediately. So somebody has to get to work building that building or building that fishing trawler or whatever it is. Now, if you went from a 10% reserve to a 20% reserve, then it would slow down the rate of growth of the money supply that's out there fishing all the fish out of the ocean to 30%, to 40%. Eventually, banks would only be allowed to lend out the money that their depositors have deposited, and the whole industry would change. Instead of being the most lucrative industry on the planet, it would create a kinder, gentler a return to an older system of banking where there weren't three banks on every downtown street in most large cities in the world. It sounds kind of like the kind of common sense budgeting that maybe your parents taught you, which is don't spend more money than you have. Don't, right. I mean, right, right. just basically live within your means. But everything in our society now encourages people to not live within their means. Yeah. You graduate college and immediately the bank starts sending you credit cards with 25% interest rates. And for most students graduating nowadays, you're settled with a significant amount of debt right there. There are nations that, believe it or not, have free college education, but that's kind of antithetical to how we live in the United States. This is not a recommendation that's going to go down easy with the current system. No. No. Is it required for our survival? I believe yes. So what you're talking about, and this gets into the analogy between economics and ecosystems is what some have called a steady state economy as opposed to a growth economy. Yes. And basically, steady state economy means you're putting back as much as you're taking mm -hmm. in terms of like you gave the example of water before. Mm -hmm. You can't really put back petroleum because once you take it out and burn it, it's gone. Mm -hmm. So you stop using things like that and start using what's wind and solar. Well, that's the idea of taxing non-renewable resources should be taxed more heavily. And we should be, if anything, subsidizing renewable resources, the production of, of energy, renewable production of energy. Right now, some people will complain about the subsidies to wind and solar in the United States and how horrible it is when, in fact, the subsidies to 
fossil fuel energy are much greater. Right. So you do things like that, and there's many more pieces to making a an ecosystem economy. You can probably, I mean, it might take us more time than we have on this podcast to fully make the argument, but let's say you could do the math, you could make the economic model for steady state as opposed to economic growth. How do we get there, given <laughs> the political system and given the political reality, and given that the hearts and minds of people are not really there at this point, and given that we probably would have to give up a lot of things that you might call unnecessary consumer product, or maybe they're things that a lot of us really like and have gotten used to. Mm-hmm. That is the big question. So it is becoming more and more obvious to more and more people that this shift, this paradigm shift is required for human survival. You see more and more in mainstream media the scientific assessment that we are threatening the collapse of civilization. Once people start taking that seriously, they will start casting about very seriously for how do we avoid this. Now, I am promoting a Nobel Peace Prize proposal, a shared proposal with three nominees, that if the Nobel Committee were to adopt and award the proposal in this manner, would be a major wake-up call. It would perhaps hasten the paradigm shift in a very significant way. It's called a Nobel Peace Prize for Sustainable Development, and the website is NP4, the numeral 4, SD, NP4SD.org. And immediately you'll see the three nominees at the top. One is an organization, two are individuals. The Club of Rome is a think tank that's been around for several decades, and they commissioned a report a study and the report that came out of MIT in 1972, it was published, called The Limits to Growth. It remains the most published environmental title in all of the literature internationally. The Limits to Growth. It was a study that modeled with the then emerging field of systems dynamics, where you could model complex systems and see how they interacted over time. And they put in human population and industrial production and pollution and the forests, the depletion of forests, and they ran the model over and over making different assumptions. The standard run, they call the business as usual run, and it saw human population peaking and beginning to decline in the middle of this century. Some of the runs the decline was very precipitous. Some of the runs could be made so that human population actually leveled out, came to a steady state. But in order to achieve that outcome in the model, you had to assume that governments were paying attention to toxic wastes and the environmental side of existence, of human existence, which we haven't. Again, the report was published in 1972, so we're 45 years on, and we have not, in a major way, addressed those limits. Um, In fact, the neoclassical economic establishment ridiculed the report and had a major push to marginalize it and pretty much was successful in getting it to drop out of the conversation. 
What was the gist of it? I mean, they ran 11 models, but what is the conclusion of it? The conclusion really is that human population is more than likely going to start declining in this century. And the reasons are because of those limits that we are violating and that we are denying. And we continue to deny those limits at our own peril. What's wrong with human population declining? I think that's what we're going to see. But to decline in a controlled fashion, we don't want human population to decline necessarily from famine, from war, from disease, what's called pestilence in biblical terms. If I may, I'd like to quote an atmospheric scientist from UC Santa Barbara, Ira Leifer. Some scientists are indicating we should make plans to adapt to a four degree centigrade hotter world. While prudent, one wonders what portion of the population could adapt to such a world. My view is that it's just a few thousand people seeking refuge in the Arctic or Antarctica. Whoa, now those are his words, not mine. What will it look like, if he's correct, what would it look like to go from seven upwards of nine billion people expected by mid-century down to a few thousand? Now, if he's off by an order of magnitude, then it's a few tens of thousands, or by two orders of magnitude, a few hundreds of thousands, or even off by a thousand What would it look like to go from seven to nine billion down to a few million people? That's horrific. We don't want that. To avoid it, we have to realize that it's really on the horizon and that climate change is capable of reducing human population down that far and perhaps making it impossible for humans to live on this planet. You paint a very stark picture and you've talked about changing our economic model and one of the ways you're hoping to do this is by proposing a Nobel Peace Prize. Well, let me, let me, if I can spell out the rest of it. The next candidate, the next nominee for this shared prize is Dr. Herman Daly. He was a World Bank senior economist for eight years, and he was in charge of the department of the World Bank that dealt with sustainable development. He resigned in 1994, basically saying that the World Bank of that day did not get it that almost all of their lending was unsustainable. He then went on to be the father, if not the founder, the father of what I have already mentioned, ecological economics. So Dr. Herman Daly is the second candidate, not a household word. The third candidate, the third nominee, is a household word. His name is Pope Francis. He's known and loved around the world, both by Catholics, Christians, and non Christians, because he is such a truly modest and spiritual man. He doesn't go around in a limousine. He likes to drive his own mini car. And his message has been that we have a rapacious economic system that is choosing to grow rather than choosing to benefit the welfare of humanity. In 2015, there was a document issued, a papal encyclical, which is an indictment of the current system for basically trashing people and planet in favor of growth and greater profits for a small number of people. So if the Nobel Committee sees fit to award this prize, it basically will say, 
Uh, duh, as my kids like to say, there are limits to growth on the planet. And it will offer ecological economics as a means of addressing the faults, the dysfunctionality of the current economic system. And it will offer the notability of Pope Francis, who I think has human welfare in mind more than most people. And because of Pope Francis's participation, I believe it will be on the front page of most newspapers. And this, the idea is that this would then get a conversation going on alternative economies and the importance of looking primarily at ecosystems and all the things that we've been talking about. All of the above. Care of creation is called in the uh, Judeo-Christian traditions. Yes, it would stimulate the conversation. University presidents all over the world would awaken to the news that limits to growth was awarded a Nobel Prize and ecological economics was awarded a Nobel Prize and would have to ask, do we teach ecological economics here? And do we have any copies of Limits to Growth in the library? And re-stimulating the conversation about limits to the planet at this point in time would be much harder to oppose by the mainstream growth economists who don't want to hear about that. What you're talking about is kind of like, for lack of a better word, PR. I mean, it's like getting the word out to more people about what some of the really important solutions are in broad strokes, in having an economic system that is ecologically sustainable and sound and and regenerative is is the buzzword a lot of people use. Mm -hmm. Are there any practical solutions, day-to-day solutions, things that people can do to change their lives in the here and now that you are promoting or practicing? You know, there are. There are tens, hundreds, thousands of them. You can find lists of the 10 most important things to do or the 100 most important things to do. They're common on the internet. But how can I, in good conscience, go around telling people to recycle? That alone will not do it. And unfortunately, it's a feel-good thing, which people will say, well, I recycle all the time, and I have a, an, an electric vehicle. We need to change the economic system. Do you think that the economic system that we have right now has to collapse in order for it to change? In other words, through huge economic recession slash depression and or basically getting to ecological limits because of, you know, soil wearing out and food not being able to be grown or the kind of pestilence and other things. Do you think there has to be a collapse in order for change to happen? I want to answer that in two ways. Do I think it has to? No. Do I think it will? More than likely, yes. I think more than likely we face a collapse of civilization because climate change cannot be stopped quickly. Because we already have, by some, by many estimates, 50 to 60 years of increasing temperatures dialed into the system. It's hard to move something as big as the climate system, but it's harder to stop it once you move it. I look at the future in probabilistic terms. I think more than likely we have passed the threshold for, if not runaway climate change, an extreme amount of climate change where the 107 degree Fahrenheit temperature last week in Portland, Oregon will be a commonplace thing. There will be far less snow and it will be at higher altitudes and the snowpack upon which agriculture, for instance, in California, the fruit basket of America depends 
will be a thing of the past. There are some nations that depend upon glaciers that are disappearing now. There will be political and, and social unrest. There will be food riots. When people don't have enough food, what happens? They come out in the streets. Okay, I'm getting a little depressed. I mean, we've got food riots, extreme temperature change, a thousand people living in Antarctica, probable depression, recession, and collapse of various kinds, maybe plague, war, and famine. Any bright spots? You know, for me, and you said you're getting depressed, the occupational hazard of what I do is depression. For me, the solution to the depression is the same as the bright spot, if there is one, the bit of hope, if there is one. And that is to get active. And what kind of action and activist organizations do you think are doing really good work and that people could join? Thank you. Um, at the top of my list is Citizens Climate Lobby in the United States, and it's become international. It's a, an organization which is devoted to lobbying about climate change in Washington, D.C. and locally at the state and federal level. And they have a very gentle approach, and they keep going back year after year until they develop relationships with, if not the senators and congresspeople, with their aides. And sometimes that's more valuable because if the senator or congressperson changes, the aides may re remain the same. And actually there is a lot more understanding and support for climate legislation for dealing with climate in the Republican Party than we are aware of. But that party has been hijacked. I'm not talking just about Donald Trump, who is a wild card, a loose cannon, charitably speaking. But it's been hijacked by big money and big fossil fuel money, big corporate money. That's not to say that the Democrats are lily white because money controls both parties. I think political activism is perhaps the strongest thing because our politicians respond to two things. One, money, campaign contributions, and two, votes. And if the youth realize that their world is threatened, then they're going to get out in, in very large numbers. Stuart Scott is founder and director of the United Planet Faith and Science Initiative. He's host of the Climate Matters TV show. You can find his organization at upfsi.org. And the website for the Nobel Peace Prize for Sustainable Development is np4sd.org. And the four is the number four, np4sd.org. The Climate Matters TV show is on the web at climatematters.org. TV. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You've been listening to Radio Activism, a production of the Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. I hope this conversation has left you with questions and maybe will lead to more conversations with other people. One thing it brings up for me is the need to think a lot harder about what it would look like to have a genuinely ecosystem-friendly society, not just household, but I mean, like, no airplanes? or planes using jet fuel made from plants? Is that even possible at a large scale? There are a lot of math problems here, which I hope to cover in other programs, but you know, does it mean that we eat a lot more simply and seasonally and locally, which sounds kind of nice, but then can be pretty austere when you're actually doing it? 
And there's also a lot of conversation about the intersection of different movements like climate change and social justice. But what does that look like for activists to really bring these things together in an effective way? I think it's up to all of us to consider these questions, talk about them, even as we're going about our daily lives. If you have ideas, comments, questions, please write to me at mc at radiocafe.org, or you can contact us through the website, radioactivism.net. You can also find us at facebook.com slash radiocafe, and we're on Twitter at radiocafemc. Please follow us and like us there. I want to thank Maria Alexa Kavanaugh for her production help today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.